Dress, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. I am April Callahan, the co-host of Dressed, along with Cassidy Zachary, who is taking a little bit of a wee break from the show for maternity leave, but she will be back soon. And today, dress listeners, we bring you part two of our two-part episode with Jessica Glasscock on the history of eyeglasses. Her book, Making a Spectacle, A Fashionable History of Glasses, was recently released and covers more than 750 years of the history of eyeglasses. And Jessica is a fashion historian where she also lectures at Parsons School of Art and Design in New York City and was formerly a researcher at the Costume Institute at the Metropolitan Museum of Art for more than a decade. And in part one of this episode, we covered eyeglasses and eyewear intended to improve sight. But today, we're going to turn our attention to sunglasses, which also have this equally fascinating history. We are so happy to welcome Jessica back to the show for part two. We have yet to speak about sunglasses. And you do note some very interesting early examples in China, as well as Inuit and Yupik people's Would you tell us a little bit about how they were using sunglasses to combat the sun's rays in terms of sight? My understanding, and I will admit, I did not dive as deeply into the the global history of eyewear, so I, I, I can't purport to be as much of an expert here at all. But my understanding of the use in China was it was much more about a sort of calming of the eye in a sense. So maybe not sunglasses in the sense of they're designed to go out in the sun, but more a therapeutic use of tinting or shading of the eyewear. Uh, in the Inuit and Yupik use of sunglasses, I'm doing air quotes. I know no one can see me, but I'm doing air quotes. <laughs> they were really glare glasses and they weren't glass at all. It was a uh, typically a sort of you know a, a solid material uh, and then there would be slits cut in. And it was designed to cut the glare of the snow and make you know visibility easier in a all white and very bright environment, which was a concern uh, for those groups of people. So that is the story there as well. I think it's also interesting to consider how those two types of glasses then reemerge in fashionable eyewear. In the 1960s, you see, oh yeah, well, exactly. The slits, Koresh, nailed it. Uh, and then Kansai Yamamoto revisited it later in the 1990s. But Koresh, and when Koresh did those glasses, I, it was so funny because everyone was like, this is bananas. What is this man doing? And it's like, he's doing something 2,000 years old. Yeah. And it's brilliant. With the tea-colored sort of lenses that you see in Chinese glasses, I feel like you see that reemerge in the late 1960s as like a, a hippie vision of eyewear that's very much associated with an exoticization of 
Chinese culture and the ideal of the opium den that's sort of embraced by hippies. And so you see the eyewear, that eyewear, that 2,000-year-old eyewear reemerge in that context as, as a sort of different cliche. So it's fascinating to see how these, these uses coming from global culture then emerge into fashionable eyewear in the 20th century. Yeah. Well, in, in the early 20th century, some of the eyewear or well, I guess, yeah, eyewear, not necessarily eyeglasses. I guess it can be both at this point. Um, brands that are still very, very well known today jump into the sunglass market. And there was a very specific development that made this possible that has something to do with Polaroid. Would you speak about that a little bit? Well, two killer apps, let's call them. Let's use that term from tech, the killer app. So the one killer app that made sunglasses really happen was Edwin H. Land's invention of the filtering Polaroid plastic sheeting, which was the first time you have a genuine glare protection and protection from the UV rays of the sun through this filtering material. And I think why the Polaroid plastic sheeting was so useful and widely distributed in sunglasses, in eyewear, is because Polaroid was developed for multiple industrial applications. Edwin Land was not trying to invent sunglasses. He was working on a couple of different issues. They then licensed the material out to be used and used by brand name by a couple of different eyewear manufacturers. That's number one that you had sunglasses that worked, I guess, because there had been tinted glasses before. I mean, tinted glasses had a period of fashionability. Even in the 18th century, there was a composer, Goldoni, who wore green tinted shades with little curtains on them. They're crazy looking. I didn't put them in the book. <laughs> uh, but, you know, that had been a thing before. These really worked. They were that industrial application brought into, into eyewear. The other thing that happened was Hollywood and the adoption of sunglasses by Hollywood performers. Because even before Polaroid, you had people like uh, Giuseppe Ratti, who will go on to found the eyewear company Persol, doing a, a silica-based lens in a sort of yellow that was designed for race car driving. Uh, you had uh, Bausch and Lomb doing the Crooks glass lenses. There were earlier versions of sunglasses. They were all very much aimed at this. I'm going to talk about like a bro market, but let's let's be more kind. <laughs> let's, let's be more kind. Let's let's say like this adventurers market, right? So race car drivers, people who want to fly planes, people who are who are fast and cool and dudes. That was the market for these things that were being developed. But in fact, it was the demand that came from women who wanted to emulate Hollywood starlets that created an explosion in sunglasses. And again, another step in the story of fashionability. Because the monocle, it was niche. Like, let's not kid ourselves. It was niche. Not everybody was wearing the monocle, but everybody was wearing sunglasses including women with temples on their faces, not carrying them around, but wearing them. And it was a game changer. And sunglasses weren't under those rules about having an optometrist on site either. So that was the other thing that made them really popular is in a sense, the 
making of eyewear into a medical device made it a premium piece of equipment, right? You can charge a lot more once you're talking about a medical device, but it also put eyewear design under the umbrella of the optometrist who were aesthetically conservative. Uh, sunglasses weren't forced under that umbrella. And so they could be aesthetically much more adventurous and they were. And we've actually already devoted an entire episode to the history of sunglasses. Um, Vanessa Brown joined us to chat about her book, Cool Shades. And among the many, many things that we talked about was what you just mentioned, this sunglasses association with sports and leisure and how all of a sudden we see this emphasis on an active outdoor life being glamorized in fashion magazines and in Hollywood, starting in the 30s in the magazines and then more in the 40s in Hollywood. But um, you touch on sport many times in your book and even have an entire chapter devoted to the aviator style. So I loved this so much. I didn't know, I didn't know a ton about like that transition from the aviators and the aviatrixes to the actual style of sunglasses, but you pulled that through. So how did this iconic style come to be and why do you think it remains so popular today? I did know a bit about the aviators in the sense that I knew that women aviators had been a significant force in the history of aviation and the history of its popularization, especially in fashion magazines. You know, there were stories about Amelia Earhart. I was less familiar with the idea of the flying flapper which was also a thing. And I, I got to dive into that a little bit. But yet the arc of the story was interesting because when I wrote this book, I obviously tried to read every book that had already existed on, on eyewear because I, it, I didn't want to repeat. And I also wanted to get my, my sort of, you know, inventor story straight. But what I started to realize that was that the story of the aviator wasn't as clear cut as, let's say, some companies' websites would have you believe, like, we invented the aviator. And I started to realize, no, it's not that simple. And so I, I had to go back a little further and dig a little deeper. And that's when I realized there had been this evolution of the aviator into the frame that we have today through these stories of sport to fashion to a mass production story. And that story with the aviator was back to Giuseppe Ratti again, who would go on to invent Persol. Because initially in aviation, women and men, and there were many women engaged in aviation, but they both wore goggles because it was an open cockpit. <laughs> and that, that was necessary. That was required as part of, you know, the, the process of flying. And then Giuseppe Ratti invented a goggle that had more of a teardrop shape. And that became the more ideal shape and started to be adapted. And then as the cockpit is closed, you start to see the possibility for something that's not a goggle that doesn't have a rubber rim, but the teardrop shape was retained. And a number of different eyewear makers start to make a teardrop shape aviation style of eyewear especially as we're in the run-up to World War II. So all of these different sort of governmental forces start to basically commission their own aviators for their own pilot. And that becomes the story. And that was interesting to me as well, that there was a transition of sort of the fashionable aviatrix 
in her wonderful glasses and her special sort of fitted cap, the idea of the aviation cap, all of these sort of, I mean, they were aviation skirts. There was aviation everything. It was a real hit in the 1920s. But as you get up in the run-up to World War II, it becomes a masculine accessory again because the heroes are now the aviators who are going to be the fighter pilots. Not that women aviators went away, but they were not allowed to participate in World War II, and they participated as auxiliary. Following World War II, you have further butch associations accrue to the aviators because of the history of the biker, who's also associated with the aviator frame. The most popular image is, of course, Marlon Brando in The Wild One, who's wearing his aviator, but he's wearing aviators because a lot of bikers actually came out of the flight crews who had participated in World War II. That was a big part of the biking community. So they were wearing the same glasses and the same jackets, and, and it's got this great association. And then Brando comes along and makes it super sexy. So the aviator continues this history, but then in the 1970s, you start to see the reemergence of women and aviators, to which I would credit a lot to Gloria Steinem. <laughs> Yay! Spectacular in her aviators, right? I mean, is there anything more iconic than like, you know, a, like, like a metal belt, hip huggers, cigarette, I'm sorry, and aviators and like fighting for women's rights? Absolutely. And I'm sure Gloria Steinem knew about Amelia Earhart and about the history of the female aviator and this sort of hidden history of feminism that is a part of that eyewear. And then what happened was fashion editorial came along and needed a shorthand way to represent this new icon of femininity that I think Gloria Steinem represented and that women wanted to see in fashion pages. And the shortcut was aviators. Mm -hmm. And I think it has persisted from there. Yeah. Oh, and, and, you know, another very persistent shape within the history of sunglasses are, of course, cat eye glasses that kind of popped onto the scene from the 1950s. And we've actually already done also an episode on Altina Shinazi. So you can tune into that to learn more and um, how she invented this fad for what were called at the time Harlequin glasses. But Jessica, I was so thrilled to learn in your book that Claire McArdle had her own eyewear line that was like cat eye shape, apparently, or cat eye-esque shaped. I had no idea. And you write in the book, quote, it was the first time a fashion designer had created an eyewear line. And if you have more to say on this, I am I am all ears. Absolutely. I mean, McArdle, goddess, icon, inventor of 7th Avenue fashion, all praise be to Claire. I was really surprised by this too. I was looking for cat eye origins and, and the popularization. I too found the story of Altina Shinazi fascinating and I too had to realize they were called Harlequin frames before they were called cat eye frames. That was an interesting challenge. And then when I got to that, I was like, well, of course, Harlequins were such a thing in the 1930s. I was looking up Harlequins generally when I started to do more research to try and go a little deeper. And I found out you could also buy a Harlequin Great Dane in the pages of Vogue. Great. With Claire McArdle, I also do like a little bit of a squirrely thing there too. It's the first 
fashion designer line of eyewear because certainly other fashion designers had created one-off frames and shapes before that. But McArdle was the first to do a full line of eyewear. They were mainly influenced by the Harlequin shape or the cat eye shape. uh, And they were in license and collaboration with American Optical. So it, it really makes sense because McArdle, I think in a lot of ways, associated the ideals of her work with industrial design as much as fashion design. And sunglasses are a very industrial designed object in a sense. They're less associated with genius designers and more associated with like a process of making and the accrual and amalgamation of all of this knowledge about about how to help people see and and also look good. So McArdle, though, I I found this out. I double checked because I was worried Scaparelli might have had the line. Like I was like, ooh, but Scaparelli's like like maybe six months after she starts to do a line as well. And hers were much less uh, popularly accessible, although a lot of fun. (laughs) Uh, But McArdle got there first and it made sense. And what she did becomes a model of licensing that I think we'll we'll get a chance to talk about a little more later. But I also was intrigued that she'd gone with something that was so uh, of the moment. She she wasn't reinventing the wheel. Uh, you know, she was like, which is interesting for Claire because, because Claire was all about reinventing the wheel in terms of like her her clothing design. Absolutely, but in this case, I think she was about being on the moment of the zeitgeist. They were, I think, a little smaller and tighter than a lot of what they, they were in a sense, a little more minimal and a little more ostentatious than a lot of the Harlequin frames that were around. So I think if anything, there was a paring down that I was really intrigued with. That's interesting. Well, you know, McArdle would certainly not be the last fashion designer to launch their own line of eyewear. Many, many, many other great mid-century 20th designers followed suit. And they usually did so under this model of licensing that you just referred to. So for any of our listeners who might not really understand how fashion licensing works, might you elaborate on that and specifically in terms of eyewear? Because you quote Women's Wear Daily in 1975 saying, quote, the licensed franchise route is leading to untapped gold mines. It was like minting money in the 70s. I mean, so you have designers engaging with eyewear in really interesting ways in the 1960s. And I think there's a real turning point moment when the House of Dior decides to get into optical. So sunglasses, you know, like I said, kind of an open, free play, free zone of of making eyewear. But getting into optical meant you're working with optometrists and and you have to sell them what you're doing. It's 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 a more involved process. So Dior in the mid 1960s started to get into optical and recruited a whole group of saleswomen that were going to do a kind of B2B business and go out and sell Dior eyewear to the optometrists of the nation. And they got a whole fleet of women out there to do that. At the time they were licensing with uh, an organization, an eyewear manufacturer called Tura. 
And then they moved in 1969 to Wilhelm Anger's Optil manufacturing, which is really important in the explosion of designer eyewear. Dior had a very sort of planned entrance into the market, but it's very important because they were the first major fashion house, I think, to make that entrance in such a big and splashy way. When they move over to Optil, away from Torin, over to the Optil manufacturer, they start to do a different kind of eyewear. Optil was also a material. Essentially, it was an injection moldable type of plastic that could be used to make the eyewear. And this was significant because most eyewear was made by sort of cutting out of a flat piece of cellulose acetate. So you're kind of wed to this sort of flat shape, even if you're going to shape and mold and like adjust and make it beautiful, treat it like jewelry, really. Uh, With Uptil, you could do these larger shapes. You could do this almost Art Nouveau curvature to the designs. And so when Dior moves into working with Optil, they create a much more dramatic style of eyewear that I think reasserts the jewelry-like properties of a pair of glasses, sunglasses or otherwise. Other fashion houses start to work with Optil. Other fashion houses start to get into the business because There was a lot of success with the style of eyewear. And I think it was this reassertion of luxury, of eyewear as luxury, and this look of jewelry reemerging again. And then the realization is that eyewear is actually pretty inexpensive to make. (laughs) And so if designers are going to engage in this process, they can then sort of put their brand name on something and it can become hugely a huge profit driver. So in the 1970s, you had French design houses getting into the business of eyewear. It was really significant for them because it was an access point to the French design houses that would be the only access point for a lot of customers. Most people weren't going to buy even a Dior handbag, but the Dior sunglasses were accessible. They were at a price point, they were way in, and they had that CD logo right there. Everybody can see you're wearing Dior. It's this point of entry into these luxury houses. For American designers who were you know, working with different economies, it becomes another licensable object that is just adding a huge revenue stream. You know, the French design houses, they have to support a whole couture business that may or may not be profitable. And that's where the sunglasses money went. But in the Americans, it was like, sure, we can also make sunglasses. I'm Halston, I can do anything. (laughs) And so it comes to a point in the 70s where licensing is such a huge business that whole agencies form to deal with getting designers licenses because these designers, especially with the advent of someone like Halston, are celebrities and brands in their own right. And so they want to connect these celebrities and brands with manufacturers who want to buy in and put their name on it. The rate in the 1970s was a 6% royalty rate. So if Halston designed or collaborated or allowed the use of his name on some eyewear, he would get a 6% royalty back for it. Uh, And if you were working with an eyewear concern that was probably doing all the design heavy lifting for you, it really was like minting money. It was it was a very, you know, a very easy way not only to 
get this extra revenue stream, but also distribute your name and your brand much more widely. And the drama, the spectacle of 70s eyewear really lends itself to this as well, because, you know, they're kind of unmistakable. Those big Jackie O's of the 70s, they're very iconic and wonderful. I enjoy them very much, but they also lent themselves to, to yeah, this licensing system. A lot of, they were, which they were using for a lot of things in fashion, but sunglasses was a particular success story. 50 years later, this generally remains the state of the industry in terms of fashion designers' lines of eyewear. So um, in terms of manufacturing, though, who are some of the big players of manufacturing eyewear, licensed eyewear products today? It's interesting what happened over time because I think that the the 6% rule is no longer the case, for one thing. I think that, that there's been a lot of shifts. It's almost like diving into this, which I, I researched a lot in WWD, you know, the, these partnerships and these plans and, and where the money was going and what was really, you know, its own going concern. It's very confusing. It's like musical chairs. Two things happened that, that shift it. One is that you start to get a model where instead of everybody making oversized luxury sunglasses, designers start to make glasses that are very closely related to their overall brand and ideal. Armani is really the launching point, the eyewear that Armani did in the late 80s. And he does it in a partnership with the eyewear manufacturer Luxottica. It's based in Italy. But what they do is they form a company dedicated to Armani's eyewear. So instead of this idea of sort of like a designer has an idea and they send it to the manufacturer and the manufacturer executes it, you instead have, and this is pretty consistent now, you have these sort of bubble companies that have a deal with the designer, have a deal with a manufacturer. And to answer your initial question, Luxottica and Safilo are the two monsters of of the business but but there is there's these other little organizations that are created mark Holland's and other manufacturers had a long history with uh, high fashion glasses as well and it keeps moving around and being renegotiated i think because there's so much money in it so <laughs> i feel like everybody keeps remaking the deal like oh we want to make this deal now like caring has their own dedicated concern for eyewear. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's a fascinating business and eyewear is so expressive, but it is also this functional tool. It's, it's just an, an intriguing spot in the fashion system that everybody wants access to right now. It is big, big, big business. And that really kind of brings us up to the current state of eyewear today. Jessica, this was amazing. Thank you. We just covered 750 years of eyeglasses in an hour. It was pretty (laughs) spectacular. So your knowledge on this subject is, is really, really appreciated and wonderful. And everybody needs to go out and get your book. I happen to know that you just wrapped up writing another book. I did. Can you share what it's about? And would you like to tease that project? I can. I am so excited about this book and it is in layouts and it also has a beautiful visual aesthetic. It's another visual history as well as written history of the wig and hair pieces. 
all about hair. Oh my God, there's going to be fleas. There's going to be lice. There's going to be big hair. There's going to be braids. There's going to be like 18th century ladies losing their heads. It's 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 been this really rich topic and it's even longer history i'm going from ancient egypt to uh to rupaul's drag race and that's it's cuz so millennia from from centuries to millennia and i'm super excited about it i hope you'll have me back oh i was that was literally what was just going to come out of my mouth is like you have to come back for that because people do keep asking and and we've mentioned it on the show about how hair pieces and the trade even of human hair, especially in the 19th century, and I guess probably even longer than that, but in the 19th century was also big business. So um, there's that aspect to it too. So this was wonderful. Thank you so much. And we cannot wait to have you back again for your next book. This is great. Thank you for having me. Jessica, thank you for an exceptionally fascinating exploration of eyeglasses of all fashions. And it is full-on summer now, and I think that a lot of our listeners will reminisce about this episode next time they put on their summer shades. That does it for us this week, dress listeners. May you consider the history of your sunglasses next time you get dressed to go to the beach. Remember, we do love hearing from you, so if you would like to write to us, you can email us at dressed at iheartmedia.com. You can also DM us on Instagram, which is where we have images to accompany each week's episodes. Thank you, as always, to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each week. Dress, the History of Fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.